another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Kelly. And this is our episode 12, so our season finale of season one. Welcome to the season finale, everyone. So today we're going to talk about fan theories and unsolved mysteries of The Wire. And if you like what you hear and if you have input, uh, remember to tweet us or email us and we'll make sure that we build some episodes in season two around these. Yeah, we thought Unsolved Mysteries might be a good way to lead into season two because there's just little tidbits of information, but uh, there's a lot more to, to talk about. Definitely. So to start us off, I'm just going to read a couple of fun facts that I found in a Mental Floss article, um, which I just thought were really interesting. So number one, David Simon said he would make a sixth season of The Wire if the Department of Justice would consider... Uh, addressing their continuing prosecution of the misguided, destructive, and dehumanizing drug prohibition. So that's pretty funny. Yeah. Okay, so the next fun fact was that David Simon had to literally beg to have the show kept on the air, which I thought was funny because, like, a lot of people felt like it wasn't going to go anywhere, including some of the actors. Some of the actors thought that? Yeah, in the research that I did, um, it said that uh, McNulty basically thought that it was going to, the pilot was so slow that the show was going to go nowhere. Oh, I feel like I remember that. And then he was so surprised that it was still happening in season four. And that's why his, his role got toned down. Right. right? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, that would Cause he sense. just couldn't commit as much as he had to. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, there was also slated to be a spinoff centered around Baltimore politics where they were going to build a whole show around Carcetti. Oh. You would have loved that. I would have. You would have really enjoyed that. Um, But uh, Simon even went so far as to write a script and started putting a writing team together. But HBO told him no on the grounds that we only want one show that nobody is watching in Baltimore, not two. Oh, that's funny. Well, I feel like the show basically would have been House of Cards. Uh, Yeah, that's probably true. Or like a West Wing kind of remake or something. Was the West Wing on at the same time as The Wire? Oh, that's a good question. I don't remember. I think they might have overlapped for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So the most popular, we, oh great. So thanks everybody for sending us amazing, stop being so awkward in the podcast studio. <laughs> Sorry. Why are you like? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm trying to like see the thing, but still talk in the mic. Well, just, you just talk. <laughs> okay. I'm doing the prompting. Okay. Okay. Um, Okay, so you guys were amazing. Thank you so much for all of your feedback. We asked you for the last two weeks to send us your biggest questions of The Wire, and we definitely got one above all of them, which was... Is Rawls gay? Or what's going on with Rawls in the gay bar? Exactly. Um, So that's that very fleeting scene where Rawls is sitting as uh, Brother Muzon is seeking Omar. Right, so Brother Muzon sends his right-hand man Lamar to go look for Omar. Right. And uh, so Lamar is very uncomfortable in these bars. And uh, actually, Lamar does ask uh, Omar's boyfriend at the time if he knows somebody named Omar or whatever. There's like a bit of a scene that ensues. Um, And so that's when uh, it pans over to Rawls. And it's never addressed at any point again in the show Right, and so I don't know what's really going on there. I guess we are meant to assume that he's, I don't know, 
closeted? So there's a bit of a debate uh, on Reddit about it. And basically people are saying, was the point kind of like, oh, he's gay, so what? We don't need to talk about it, so that's why it's not talked about? Or was he, you know, purposely closeted? Um, well, I think my feeling would be that he would be purposefully closeted because the other gay characters that we see on the show, you know, they're they're out and it's not like their storyline or whatever, so it doesn't need to be talked about, but it's still... Like mm-hmm. visible to their communities. Yeah, definitely. And there's actually a, a Quora um, article called What Scenes from the Wire Strongly Imply That Deputy Commissioner William Rawls is Gay. So this was really quite, I mean, people were concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, not concerned, but like questioning. Questioning yeah. enough that there are articles on the internet about it. Um, so one fellow, John Mixon, lifelong fan, says he's got a list of um, seven reasons why he thinks that uh, Rawls is gay and that it gets hinted at. Now, he talks about Rawls never having any contact with women. Um, yeah. And, and, like, it really never being mentioned that his wife is around. And we, we have talked about absent women. We have. And I'm, I see here that in this person's list of seven reasons, they say that Rawls doesn't wear a wedding ring. And I disagree yes. because yeah. I've seen him wear the wedding ring. Yeah. I wonder if maybe this person noticed Rawls not wearing a wedding ring later in the series and that perhaps Rawls went through a divorce that just does not get discussed. Yeah. Perhaps because he's gay. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Definitely. Um, Well, and one of the other points that's made later on um, is that there is, uh, like, Rawls, so this is Seth Milstein, on Cora, he says that when Rawls is like really angry, he uses these like overly homophobic turns of phrase to like make his point. That I agree with a hundred percent. He does mm-hmm. that to McNulty a lot. Yeah, exactly. Like he says, um, "Did you really have to shove the numbers right up my ass? What part of bend over didn't you understand?" There's like Yeah, well, in one of those very first scenes of episode one, Rawls says to McNulty, like, these are for you. One's going up your n- narrow Irish ass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So perhaps part of his overcompensation for, you know, remaining closeted is about these things. Mm-hmm. Finally, there is one other interesting point that's brought up on a couple of different sites, and it's that there's bathroom graffiti uh, in the police station that says... Rawls sucks cock. Oh. So <laughs> that's the only other real hint towards it. Um, so that's an interesting. Yeah, and I, you know what? I kind of feel like this would be a good thing to dig into in, in season two of our podcast because um, clearly there's a lot going on there, and I think we could really look at some of the either homophobic language or um, let's find the moment that he stops wearing a wedding ring. Mm-hmm, Yeah. That's a really good idea. Um, so one of the other things that I saw when I was doing some research online was this this Stringer and Donette situation. And the reason why the Stringer and Donette situation I thought it would be interesting to talk about is because um, in this complex article, so this is um, the complex article that highlights every flaw in The Wire. 
Was this in their comparison to Breaking Bad? No, this is a different article. Oh. Um, so they've listed a few of the flaws. Like, some of them are pretty obvious, such as, like, that whole serial killer, fake serial killer line. Yeah, like you we know. talked about, it was just ridiculous. Exactly. So there was there was some obvious missteps. But one of them that they say is that the Stringer and Donette uh, relationship isn't believable. But why would that be? Well, and I kind of thought like, well, no, it's not believable because it's clearly a manipulation on Stringer Bell's part. Yes. So like to me, it doesn't need to be believable. Well, and it's also, it's, I don't think we really need to call it a relationship. I mean, Donette is looking to find a provider, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, which is what D'Angelo was. And Stringer is trying to bring Donette closer so that she won't question the death of D'Angelo. Right. So I really think it's just a, like you know, this chess metaphor. They're both just making chess moves. Right. Oh, see, I've never thought about Donette being also making the moves. Well, she's so peripheral. I don't think we see her do that much, but I do think she knew what she was Mm -hmm. going for with Stringer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, with Dee, she's always talking about how she wants, like, you know, nice things, and she likes to be taken out to nice places, and, like, so with Stringer, I feel like she sees the opportunity. Like, he seems more willing to spend money, or he seems to have the same ambitions as her with his, like, businessman. Well, and he's also higher rank in the Barksdale organization. Right. Yeah, for sure. So she's, like, moving up the ladder. Yeah, that is true. And it's just another way that I think Stringer and D'Angelo are juxtaposed as well. Yeah. Against each other. Anyway, they say in this complex article that they think that it's pretty cold for even for string to have this sort of false relationship just purely for manipulation purposes. But I actually disagree. I don't think that that's that cold for Stringer Bell. I don't think it's that cold. And I also don't think Donette cares that much. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so some other critical questions that we've found, um, come from a Vulture article called Our Top Ten Questions Left Unanswered by Season 5 of The Wire. And these are really interesting. So first one, so that actually they have ten questions. I've just pulled five that I think are the most interesting. Um, So what exactly, and this is a huge one, is Cedric Daniels' incriminating file? Right, because uh, it's at some point in Season 1, McNulty's FBI friend says... Oh, Daniels, the lieutenant leading the detail, he's dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my heart was broken the first time I watched because I thought, oh, no, I really like Daniels. But then we never really find out about what was going on with that. I think it's McNulty says, oh, maybe he goes up to Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. And then it's just never touched on again. Yeah. I mean, Cedric Daniels' wife, Marla, kind of touches on it when she says, like, oh... Um, he knows your bad days or whatever. He knows, like, when she's talking about who he needs to find favor with, with Burrell. Um, but, the, like, the, we we never do find out. And when Marla even runs for city council and stuff, you would think that if anybody was trying to campaign against her, if there was dirt there, they would try to dig it up or it would come out. But it never, it never does come out. Yeah, and I mean... Like, I, I thought there might be a tie-in with Marla being so close to Mayor Royce and, mm-hmm. like, his ties to Clay Davis. But, no, we never really hear what, what it is. No, 
No. So, listeners, what do you guys think? What do you think Cedric Daniels' incriminating file is? And how bad is it? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, what needed to get buried? Okay, next question. It seems as though Sidner didn't lose his job as a result of the scandal the way McNulty and Freeman did. How did he end up unscathed? Was he very involved, though, in the serial well, killer fabrication? That, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my, like, I feel like he just was sort of, maybe he became aware of it, but by then it was so, like, he wasn't involved in, like, the cultivation of the free, or the fake serial killer. Yeah. So. And he wasn't the one who was, like, tampering with bodies, I don't think. Yeah, no. So, anyway, that, well, there goes that question. <laughs> um. How is it that Nick Sabotka is back in Baltimore and out of witness protection? So in season five, he does have that cameo where he's rallying at the Granary Pier. So why, yeah, like what's become of him? Because we know that the Greeks are also back in season five. Right. And we know that at the end of season two, him and his girlfriend and their daughter were going to get new identities and be protected. And... I could see if it was just Nick Sabotka, him saying, like, no, I'll just, you know, stay in Baltimore or whatever. But then mm-hmm. there's the daughter and the girlfriend. So mm-hmm. what happened to them? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Okay, next uh, question. And this also came up on social media. So at one point, David Simon had told an audience um, at a university that Randy Wagstaff is actually Cheese Wagstaff's son. So Cheese is, of course, Method Man's character and... Uh, Proposition Joe's nephew, I believe. Yeah. And Randy is then, of course, the the kid that becomes a rat and gets really badly treated and has to go to the group home. And, like, that's one of the saddest scenes ever when Carver has to drop off Randy at the group home. Yeah, it's so sad. Well, and I think the saddest part about it is that there's such indications that then Randy was going to go down this dark path and just be totally damaged by it. Exactly. So that's an interesting conversation when we think about Randy and when we think about... Naimond. Yeah, when we think about Naimond. So when we think about Randy and when we think about Naimond, how Weebae is so clearly involved in fathering and even though he's in jail he's asking and you know his wife is there all the time and or his partner I guess. Um, Naimond's mom. So like, why didn't Cheese participate in the raising of Randy? And and where's Randy's mom? We know that she's, like, on drugs. Um, right. We don't really know where she is because Randy lives with a foster mom. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if it's just as simple as maybe Randy doesn't even know his dad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe Cheese just went to prison or maybe the mom got arrested and then it just like totally severed ties yeah they might not even know yeah that's true well and I mean I I would never have guessed that I just know that from David Simon announcing it but like there's no in there's no indications no there's none the only thing that I think indicates is that they have the same last name right um but even that like you you rarely hear it yeah. You only see it because you see Cheese Wagstaff pinned on the corkboard of the detail in season two. Right. Otherwise, I don't think you would know. Right, 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 right. Third, or the, sorry, the fifth question that uh, Vulture asks is, what would have happened to Rawls if he had been outed? 
Um, or was his sexuality always intended as simply a little piece of out of nowhere character flavor? Well, I think he would have been ostracized if he had been outed at the police department. Or not ostracized, but treated differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and we see that, I mean, even though Kima is out, technically, she's not actually that out. Like, when they when she's been shot and uh, one at the top brass is asking, like, oh, she has a girl and Barella's confused by this. Right. Uh, they kind of cover up for her. Well, and I think the other reason it wouldn't be as comparable is that Kima, as this, like, strong cop, is mm-hmm. still kind of, you know, stereotypically able to, like, keep up with the boys, which is what the police department is kind of dominated by. Whereas Rawls, if he was outed, might be stereotypically viewed as more effeminate or something mm-hmm. like that, weaker, not able to be part of this boys' club. Yeah, exactly. So... So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I do think in the sense that it was supposed to be a out-of-nowhere character flavor thing. Like, I think if David Simon had wanted to explore that storyline of Rawls, he would have. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah, so I think it was intentionally just kind of, like, thrown in there. It's just, like, an interesting little thing. Yeah, I don't think it was... Um, I think it was, like, a teaser, kind of. Yeah. So, we've got some other questions. Do you want to... Yeah, one thing that always occurred to me was did Frank Sabatka used to beat Ziggy yeah you do wonder that so why don't I you do tell us why? because so there's a scene it's after Ziggy lights the hundred dollar bill on fire in the bar and they're walking Frank and Ziggy afterwards and Frank says is that my son in there lighting money on fire in front of a bunch of working stiffs and they start having this conversation about how many shifts Ziggy can get on the on the boats and things. And then Frank says, I want to throw you more. You think I don't want to throw you more? And then Ziggy says, yeah, you throw plenty. And I always thought that was like an, an indication of like throwing punches or something, like right. something from their past. And then at one point Ziggy says, you want to hit me again, Pop? Yeah. So I don't know. I always thought that that was part of this tension that they have between them um and maybe not something that still goes on but something from when they were young Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I mean I definitely remember the part where he says you want to hit me again dad but I sort of assumed that was just like in the moment like you know like because Frank kind of smacks him upside the head yeah and I guess he kind of like jostles him outside the bar um but I don't know I always I always thought it was more than that Yeah. But listeners, what do you think? Am I reading way too far into that scene? (laughs) Um, I also think that Ziggy would not survive in prison. Mm, Yeah, I don't think he would survive in prison. Like, uh, it would just be so horrible. Yeah. Um, Okay, what's another question that you have dangling? Well, the other question I have dangling is Ziggy's brother. We know there's a brother because he gets mentioned. Mm -hmm. How did he manage to escape or not follow in this stevedore path? What became of him? We don't really, we never see him. Uh, Does he live in Baltimore? Mm -hmm. Um, And if not, I mean, Frank specifically says to that um, guy who gives him the money from city council, I can't remember his name, DiBiagio or something. Mm -hmm. He says, I don't care if my sons can't go to DiBiagio and sons 
to get their knives sharpened, but it kills me that there's no future for the sabotkas on the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when he says sabotkas, plural, like he means Ziggy, but he also means Nick, and Mm -hmm. presumably he would mean his other son, who, you know, I think it's mentioned that he goes off to college. So I'm just intrigued, like what happened there that this other son had such a different life. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, to think about, like, did did that son disappoint Frank by going to college? Or was he the the model son? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Ziggy as a stevedore certainly disappoints Frank, which is why he puts so much emphasis and love into his relationship with Nick. Yeah, and that's what's so sad. I know, because, like, you can feel that Ziggy is always sort of trying to compete and always kind of coming in second or last, really. I mean, last. Yeah. You know, and and he's never taken seriously. And then, of course, it comes to that pivotal moment where he shoots Double G in the warehouse and and the warehouse kid. And that's kind of, like, I feel like it's it was just, like, an expression of, you know, finally someone's going to take me seriously. Yeah, he was, like, for once being the, the tough guy. Yeah, and he just, like, and it was all over those Mercedes. And I also find it really symbolic in that situation that um, it was a, a heist that him and horse pull. or horse, Jason. Sorry, Jason, not horse. Right, horse is the older guy. Yeah. yeah. So it's this, like, thing that him and Jason pull. Nikki's not involved. Every time Ziggy gets involved, it gets fucked up. Like, when he's trying to do the drug deal and the package and he shorts White Mike on the package and, you know, he's always making a mess of things. So this is supposed to be his, like, moment in the sun where he proves himself as a man, as as a hustler. And Double G makes a joke of him. Yeah. And then that's it for Ziggy. That's when Ziggy changes everything. It's awful. I can't even think about it. I know. I see that you're very stressed about (laughs) it. Um, Okay, so one question that I've always had is early on, one of the very first scenes with Omar, we see a young woman with a baby come over to him and tell him that her check is late and ask him for basically like a freebie. Yeah. And I've always wondered, was that bug in Michael's mom and is that bug on her hip? That's a good question. Um... Was she asking for drugs, though? I thought she was asking for money. No, I think she's asking for drugs. Because I didn't think Omar really dealt drugs. I thought he only was, like, the stick-up boy. But what do you think he does with all the drugs when he has them? I don't know. I guess I just thought he took the money. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, so I guess she was asking for freebie. Um, Well, and Robin, he's like the Robin Hood of the hood, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, do we see... Um, Michael's mom later. I know we see her, but, like, do we compare actresses? Are they the same actress? Well, I don't know if they're the same actress um, because there's certainly a different look later on. Like, she looks much more... In the in this first scene with Omar, she's still, like, a young, healthy-looking woman. But, Functional. Yeah, but they make Michael's mom... You know, like, when he's, like... When she gives away the rice aroni and and she well she says that a starving boy came to the door and she gave him the rice aroni oh yeah and then that's when Michael says what you gave him a raw box of macaroni or raw box of rice aroni uh, because he knows that she sold the groceries for drug money so by that point she's looking quite a bit rougher right 
So I don't know if it's the same actress. I'd have to do like a screenshot. Yeah. I don't know though. That's a good question. Yeah. Um, the other question that I've always had, which I have a strong answer of, is was Cuddy ever inappropriate? Right? Because Michael's sketched out by Cuddy. Uh, yeah, because he spends too much time around the boys, the young boys. Right. So I never found Cuddy inappropriate. What about you? I didn't either. I thought the reason that Michael was uncomfortable around him is because Cuddy is carrying on with all the moms. Oh. Um. See, I thought he was uncomfortable because he's been molested. Well, I think he is uncomfortable for that reason because he doesn't like the fact that this man is going into these moms' lives because that's how he experienced that himself. I feel like that's what makes him uncomfortable. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Or maybe just the fact that he hangs around the boys, the young boys. But I think it's more that he's, like, around the moms. Yeah. Totally segueing. um to a different thing, but it makes me think of when we watched Moonlight, how when um, he's, like, holding, he's teaching the boy how to swim in the ocean, and he's, like, holding him, and, you know, they develop this, like, mentor relationship or father-son kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. That whole time I was worried it was going to get inappropriate. Oh. You know, like, I kept expecting for that to happen. Um, And I feel like I'd never kind of felt that way with Cuddy, but I could see, like, how... Michael would feel that way. Yeah, well, I could see how Michael would feel that way, and it is, like, it's sad, but it is, you know, when older men spend a lot of time around young people. Yeah, but he was trying to mentor them and teach them to box. and get them out of the... The 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 cycle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's an interesting question. I know that there are people out there who do think Cuddy was inappropriate. So, like Justin. Yep. Justin, our, our, our friend from the last episode. Um, so that's, uh, that's where we're at. That's where we've... So that's lots for everyone to think about. And if you have opinions about any of these unsolved mysteries, we definitely want to hear them. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're going to go away for a couple months strategize yep and we're gonna come back with season two if you want season two we hope you do yeah we we appreciate all of your feedback especially those of you that said you do want season two um so we're gonna do it we're gonna try so send us your topic suggestions uh you can reach us at rewired podcast on twitter or you can email us podcast.rewired at gmail.com and we'll keep tweeting and responding to emails over the course of our break Definitely. Um, So we make these, well, actually, we make this podcast using the Opinion app, although today we're recording it in a real podcast studio. So thanks, Media Style. Thanks, Media Style. And you can catch our theme music on SoundCloud by Flo Florg. It's a remix of Tom Waits' Way Down in the Hole. So we'll see you next time in a couple of months, and we'll go even deeper, way Way down down in the the hole. hole.